Welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. This episode is part one of a two-part conversation with Frank Morton of Wild Garden Seeds. His knowledge and insights into the world of plant selection and breeding are inspirational. He's developed a multitude of cultivars, including various salad greens and flowers. But in this episode, he joined me to discuss all things Chenopodium quinoa. His quinoa varieties have been studied and grown across North America. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Song and Plants. Would you mind introducing yourself? Thanks for having me, Carmen. Uh, Yeah, I'm Frank Morton. I'm a seedsman in Western Oregon. I've been growing seeds and selling them for, well, I've been selling them for about 28 years. I've been growing them since I became a farmer in 1980. I always thought that growing your own seeds was just basically a good idea for a farmer. And at some point during my career, I realized that growing seeds was what I really wanted to do for my career. And uh, so I have a seed company, Wild Garden Seeds, operated by my wife, Karen, and myself. We're a small company. We grow seeds for other seed companies, Johnny's, Fedco, High Mowing Seeds, about a dozen seed companies buy our seeds. But we also have our own website and a paper catalog that we send out each year. I am not trained in botany, actually, or genetics or anything like that. I do a lot of plant breeding and selection. It's Basically, my methods are quite intuitive, but it, it has, <laughs> I have bred something on the order of, um, I don't know, 135 plants, something like that. Anyway, that's what we do. Originally, we specialized in salad greens. I'm in my upper 60s at this point, so I'm thinking about how to keep being a seed grower the rest of my life, and that's kind of turned me toward growing more and more flower seeds. So our catalog at this point is about half flower seeds and half vegetable seeds. What drew you to seeds? Well, as I said, my ambition was to teach myself to be a farmer. I have a BS in psychology and I use it every day. (laughs) I wanted to be a farmer from an early age. In fact, if you want to really know what drew me to seeds, it was eating watermelon. I was uh, five or six years old. And by the time I was six, I knew that watermelons came from seeds. And I knew that if I planted those seeds, I could have all the watermelon I wanted for free. So I took direct action and planted those watermelons (laughs) Of course, it was August when I planted them, so nothing came of that, but it didn't matter. It it really did strike in my mind at an early age that a lot of desirable things could be had from seeds, and I never forgot that. I would say what really set me on the career of being a seed grower was seeing my first accidental cross-pollination in a flat of lettuce lettuce that I had grown my own seed for. And one day, uh, I noticed a red oak leaf lettuce growing among hundreds of green oak leaf lettuce. And I knew in my head that that was a cross. And I knew what the cross was because I knew what had been growing near each other. So what I was looking at was a cross between an heirloom red romaine and uh an old commercial standard green oak leaf. And I knew I wanted the seeds from that plant and I saved the seeds. There were only 65 of them. I planted them the next year thinking I was going to get a whole bunch of red oak leaf, but that's not what you get. 
when you make a cross. Instead, what I got was a whole rainbow of lettuces ranging from oak leaves to romaines and a lot of forms in between the two. And I saw that rainbow of genetic, you know, expression and the light just came on. It was like, oh, this is where new varieties come from. And if I have new varieties, my customers will be interested in that. It was, you know, just a natural path, I guess is what I would say. And how did that path lead to quinoa? Well, my business, my farm business at the time was growing salad greens for restaurants. And we were, we were among the very first people to grow mixed salads, put them in a bag, and offer them for sale as a salad mix. So I was sort of on a quest to find every kind of edible leaf that I could find, actually. I got into this idea of salad diversity. I wanted to introduce salad greens to people they had never seen before. I did a lot of reading on things you could eat raw from all around the world, and I set about ordering the seeds for those. And uh, we had this salad business basically. And we were sending salad greens from our off the grid home in Washington to, we were sending them to Seattle, to Portland, Oregon, to New York City, eventually Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. I guess I first saw quinoa in a seed catalog in 1983. And it was, they were not named varieties of quinoa. They were just numbers. Uh, And they had come from Colorado State, and they were just mixed populations of quinoa. I didn't even know where they had come from. You know, I didn't know the country of origin or anything. But I bought three varieties of them. Uh, we started using them for salad greens, and I was really just growing them for the greens. But of course, I was growing my own seed from them. And to look at them, you know, from my naive point of view, not understanding quinoa at all, they all just looked like mixed populations. There were gold plants and red plants and white plants. And when I say that, I'm talking about the color of the, the seed head. And so very quickly, I kind of got them all mixed up because I had a hard time actually telling them apart, these different lines. So at some point, I was just growing from one giant pool of quinoa that had originated as three populations that had been brought to Colorado by essentially a sociologist who had worked with farmers in South America. I began, because I am this way, I began sorting the, the plants out in terms of their seed colors, the color of the seed head, the stature of the plant, size of the leaves. I began sort of sorting them out genetically. And at some point I had, uh, I had strains that were, you know, all red headed types or all gold headed types or all white headed types. Essentially I had taken these, I don't really want to call them land races. They were probably really, Community-bred quinoa is all I can say. There were no names or regions attached to them, so I didn't have any kind of cultural history to help me out here. I just started giving them names, you know, redhead, cherry vanilla, which was a mixture of a red type and a white type. I called. I started calling the population brightest brilliant because there were so many colors in it. It was like a rainbow. And I began selecting for, really, for brilliance of color, because I liked looking at it. <laughs> so I looked for the brightest reds, the brightest pinks, the brightest golds, things like that. Eventually, I would realize that out of that, there, there was a quinoa line that was resistant to sprouting during wet weather, which is one of quinoa's weaknesses. If it gets rained on during the fall when the seed is ripe, the seeds will sprout right away. So there was this one red line that I found. Well, it was a total accident. It got rained on in August, 
I noticed that in this red line, 75% of the plants did not sprout. So I saved seeds from those, did it again, and the next time they got rained on in that sort of way, 95% of the plants did not sprout. And so I just continued that process. Basically, what I was doing without knowing it, by selecting for colors, plant size and shape, seed size and shape, I was isolating self-pollinating lines of quinoa out of this mass population that I had started with. And you have to understand how naive I was. I didn't know anything about quinoa to start with. I knew very little about plant breeding other than a sort of an intuitive understanding. I did not understand at the time that quinoa was self-pollinating. I assumed it was a cross-pollinating plant. But over time, I began to realize, no, these plants are self-pollinating. And I began to realize the difference between breeding self-pollinating plants and breeding cross-pollinating plants. The methods are completely different. But I didn't know that. I was experimenting in my garden was really what was happening. And as I was doing it, I was creating these quinoa isolates that would really require some graduate student work to <laughs> completely describe for me what I had created. It was around 2010, a researcher at Washington State started a quinoa project. I knew this guy from the time he was 18 years old. And so when I found out that he was starting, he was now a PhD plant breeder, and he was working on quinoa, I offered him my varieties, and he was tickled pink. In fact, he said that uh, his name is Kevin Murphy. He put six varieties of mine into a 3,000 variety trial that they were doing there. They, wow. they had collected about 3,000 kinds of quinoa from South America, from all the germplasm repositories they could find. And they were growing them all out in eastern Washington state to try to figure out how many of these have potential for growing here. But it turned out all of my varieties, basically, they were in the top tier of performance, which uh, Kevin found fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and he immediately had grad students start doing, you know, food analysis on these varieties. That is to say, looking at protein content, you know, what the various constituents are, one of them being amylopectin. It's a carbohydrate found in sticky rice. And it turns out there's sticky quinoa. One of my varieties was, it had the properties of a kind of a quinoa that you'd want to make noodles from. Another variety had 16% protein, which is very high. I didn't discover these things. All I did was isolate quinoa varieties based on how well they grew, how well they yielded, their adaptation to this local climate, and various physical attributes like color that I could see. And it turns out all those things are significant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the main thing was that quinoa, a lot of it comes from the equatorial zone. That is to say, you know, they come from the Andes, Peru, Bolivia, and those kinds that come from Peru will not produce seeds where I live because I'm at 45 degrees latitude and my days are much too long for Peruvian or Bolivian quinoa types to flower. They oh, fascinating. flower in late October, early November is when they finally flower. They get to be about 12 feet tall. Our seeds, the seeds that I started with, we now know came from Chile, probably in the range of 40 to 45 degrees latitude. And that's why they work here. When I say work, that's why they will yield here. They are essentially day neutral. Whereas most of the quinoa varieties in the world are short day plants. 
they won't set seed when the days are 13 or 14 hours long. Anyway, my experience with quinoa, very accidental. Very <laughs> accidental. If it hadn't had leaves that tasted good in a salad that made a good substitute for spinach in the heat of summer, if that hadn't been true, I probably would not really have stuck with this plant. I was interested in it for its usefulness. I don't know. I think this is what happened to people through history. I really do. I think that we have always been on the outlook for things to eat. And so if you could eat it as a leaf, that is sort of a, you know, that makes you keep it around. If you are a paleolithic human, you're eating all the seeds you can find too, because that's where the protein is. And, you know, one accident leads to the next. And before you know it, you've got this amazing crop called quinoa that becomes the backbone of a culture. It just seems so unlikely, you know. I think of my career as sort of a recapitulation of the history of man and plants. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the plants really leading, leading me. And I do, I do seriously believe that plants are really high beings in their ability to form relationships with animals, starting with insects. But I, I cannot think of it as being anything other than a two-way street between plants and people. I don't think people make plants do anything. I think plants do stuff. People see what they have done. They select, they keep what they like, and the plant makes more of it. And in fact, it doesn't just make more of that thing. It will make more of that thing and now and then add something special to it, which gives another opportunity for people to say, oh, that I also like. Maybe I like that even more. And that is the process of plant domestication. So if you were growing quinoa as a leaf crop, were you also selecting it as a leaf crop? Well, yes. I would say yes, because our method of harvesting salad at that time, very different from the way that mixed salads are harvested these days. These days, you know, it's planted thick. It's all mowed off. So many mixed salads these days are just uh, young plants that have been mowed off. And I don't actually like that kind of salad. <laughs> the kind of salad that we grew as a mixed salad, we actually transplanted all the plants. We plant them out closely, you know, lettuce maybe six inches apart. And then we would be picking them leaf by leaf. So wow. a lettuce plant during the summertime might get picked twice a week. And then you come back to that same plant the next week and you pick more off of it. I would be looking for the most intense pigmentation and the feel of the leaf. Was it thick or was it thin? Was it at all hairy? And that, that idea of the feel of the leaf, we touched every leaf, you know? And so when it came to quinoa, you're asking about selecting it for its leaf. It's like, yeah, some of these plants have thicker leaves than others. Uh, some of them have larger leaves than others. Quinoa leaves are very salty, which is a pleasant flavor in a salad mix. Salt enhances taste of everything. So quinoa leaves were not just a good substitute for spinach, actually. They were uh, sort of a flavor enhancer for the whole salad mix. And <laughs> when you're a salad guy, it's all about the leaves. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess the seeds did start to draw you in. You were talking about what it looked like. Like what, what, yes. That's even a question in itself. What does a quinoa flower head look like? Well, the, the technical term for it is it's a panicle, it's an aggregation of individual florets. The quinoa plant looks just like lamb's quarter. If you know what most gardeners know what lamb's quarter looks like. Oh, yes. It, it looks like a lamb's quarter where all the plant parts are bigger. The leaves are bigger, the stem is thicker, the plant gets taller, 
the seeds are larger. It looks like a lamb's quarter that's been bred up to be something different. It's a mark of domestication. When the seeds are all aggregated in one large cluster at the top of a plant, like we see in amaranth, sorghum, quinoa, that aggregation is itself a sign that the plant has been domesticated. The wild version of a quinoa does not have a seed head that looks like a domestic one. The seeds are, are sort of spread out along the stem, more like a lamb's quarter. Human interactions with food plants, <laughs> we are always trying to make them be better food plants. And that means easier to collect and higher yielding. And so the very first mark of domestication in a plant and quinoa has this too, is uh, non-shattering seed heads. A wild wheat would drop its seeds to the ground just about as fast as people could collect it. So when you are collecting something like a wild wheat, let's just say, the act of collecting is an unconscious act of selecting for seed heads that don't shatter. The ones that don't shatter tend to be the ones that you are able to get. And that becomes a feedback loop. Every time you do it, you are collecting a wheat plant that shatters a little less until eventually you end up with a wheat seed head that hangs together and you can cut the, you can harvest the whole thing, lay it on the ground and, uh, the seeds don't fall off. So in quinoa, it was the same process. Wild quinoa in South America looks like a small lamb's quarter, and the seed head is quite diffused. That is to say, there are little balls of seed stretched out along the, uh, the panicle. In quinoa, that panicle has become congested, I think is the right word, the space between the flowers is, all, is shortened so that now as it flowers, it is just a whole bunch of flowers opening up, you know, a new one each day is opening up, putting its pistol out, and it's either being pollinated by, mm, well, bees actually visit quinoa to, to collect pollen. Bees and flies, things like that, might cross-pollinate it, but... In quinoa, it is most likely to self-pollinate itself before any insect crosses it. When you have a plant that is self-pollinating and you keep selecting it for to be more and more what you want, it's like every generation you're getting closer and closer to what you want because it's not crossing out to other plants and going back toward the wild. A self-pollinating plant is really easy to bring into a uniform, more domesticated state. So the quinoa plant itself will be, in terms of height, they vary a lot. I've seen quinoa do its whole life cycle and be two feet tall. If you take that same plant and give it more space, the very same variety will get to be six feet tall with branches. So quinoa responds to its spacing and to available nutrients and water in a profound way. The quinoa that's grown in, in South America is generally grown with wide spacing. There might be three feet between the plants. And those plants look like Christmas trees. <laughs> they wow. are huge. They're six or seven feet tall. They're three or four feet across and all the tips of the branches have one of these seed heads at the end. The colors can be pure white through yellows, pinks, magentas, deep red, burgundies. So the seed head color can vary a lot. The seeds inside the seed head most of the domesticated kinds are white. Well, the kinds that you see commercially are white. 
if you start breeding your own, you can get other seed colors. It's not hard to have a beautiful nut brown or a jet black. But when they're jet black, the seeds have a seed coat on them that is uh, basically, it's almost a reversion to the wild state where the seed coat has thickened again. And in a white quinoa, the seed coat is so thin that it is transparent, basically. Huh. Uh, the intermediate stages are browns, and in some cases, that brown can actually be red. When you take that seed coat off, though, the inside of the seed is still white. So the, when you say quinoa seed color, you're actually talking about the color of the seed coat. And in some cases, that color is durable. That is to say, it will stay black or it will stay red. In other cases, you might harvest the seed and it looks red when you harvest it. But over time, that red becomes brown. And uh, I think that's just oxidation of the, the pigments. Anyway, the general appearance of the plant can be anything from that large Christmas tree size thing with this ornamentation of bright colored panicles on it. But if you instead treat that quinoa as if it was a wheat plant and you plant them in rows where the plants are two inches apart, rather than growing into it something like a Christmas tree, it just grows a single stem with a single seed head on top of the stem that would remind you of a, of a wheat plant in some sense. And this is the very same variety. You can take the very same variety and depending on how you space it, uh, you'll get these different results. So the plants are basically, they're very plastic. I've seen quinoa, you know, complete its life cycle in a crack in the sidewalk. Wow. The, literally six inches tall with a little, I don't know, two and a half inch tall panicle on top that's got dozens of seeds in it. It has completed its life cycle being that small. But when you give that, <laughs> you take those very same seeds and you put them in your garden that you've fertilized and that where you water it, that same plant will get to be eight feet tall and will yield so much seed that it will its branches will break off. Oh, wow. That's a crop failure. <laughs> huh. Actually, the plant is super responsive to its environment. It responds very strongly to available water and available nitrogen. And if it has a lot of those, it wants to be big. And if it doesn't have water, that's okay too. It'll be small. If it's crowded, that's fine. It'll be small. There's some plants that just can't handle that. You know, if you try to cram corn in too close, it just won't mature any corn. So wow. I find quinoa uh, kind of fascinating that way. It's responsiveness. It's such a, such a likely candidate to be domesticated because it responds so much to its environment. So that people could actually make changes in the plant by how they treated it. And it's just a... It's a willing partner in the co-evolutionary dance, is what I would say. Two things that you mentioned that I'm a little bit curious about. One is in regards to the seed coats, do they need to be removed? No. Black quinoa, you cook it with the, you cook it, you know, just the same way that you would uh, a white quinoa. It's just a little chewier because it's got more fiber. Okay. Basically. That's, that's my opinion of it. I don't like black quinoa as much as I like red and white quinoa. The chewiness is, well, you can see why most people select it against it. <laughs> it's a little more fiber than you might need in your diet. Um, but that seed coat, with domestication, it just gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And this is a hallmark, actually, of domestication of many crops. In fact, in caves in the southern United States, along the Gulf Coast especially, states like Alabama and Arkansas, 
they have uh, limestone caves. Those caves were used as human dwellings. And in those caves, uh, archaeologists find old hearths, places where food was prepared. When they dig around there, they can find uh, a quinoa relative. It's uh, called huazantle. It's still grown in Mexico as huazantle. The huazantle species is almost identical in appearance to quinoa and to lamb's quarters. And the wild form of huazantle has a seed coat just like lamb's quarters. But around these hearths where people were preparing this species, they find seeds that have thin seed coats. And if they go outside the cave and find the same geographic layer, I mean geological layer, they can also find seeds of that species there. But those wild seeds have thick seed coats. So what you can see in comparing uh, the wasantle seeds that are associated with the fire hearths versus the wasantle seeds that are, were growing wild, there are marks of domestication on the seeds that are around the hearth. And that mark of domestication is a thin seed coat. And what a thin seed coat does for you in that species is it allows the plant to germinate in seven days, kind of like a lettuce. Whereas the wild form, it might not germinate for six weeks, you know. They are wild plants, and their seed coat needs to have some erosion of it, some scratching, before the seed will imbibe water and grow. And so what we see over and over in domesticated species is after the shattering <laughs> comes the thinning of the seed coat which creates a plant that can be reliably planted and harvested. Imagine lettuce. If you, if you uh, collect wild lettuce seeds and plant them, they don't germinate the way domestic lettuce does. They don't just come up all in seven days. If you plant wild lettuce, some of it won't germinate till next year because the seeds have not gone through this process of basically having their dormancy factors eliminated. Oh, wow. So getting rid of dormancy in Kenopodium was one of the first steps toward domestication. And so when you look in South America, where they're growing quinoa as opposed to wasantle, I, I have not read that they have found that same wild species growing that has its original seed coat. I have a sense that maybe that has disappeared. There is something they call wild quinoa, but it doesn't. It has a thin seed coat, and it makes you think that so-called wild quinoa actually is already carrying the signs of domestication before the plant was enlarged and the seeds were enlarged. The next thing that had me a little bit curious is yeah. you mentioned in terms of selection is harvesting. How do you go about effectively? and efficiently harvesting quinoa? A uh, good question. Like a lot of plants, quinoa doesn't ripen all its seeds at one time, right? It's like it puts up its seed head. The first seed head is at the tip of the plant. Later on, seed heads come out on the branches, the tips of the branches. So the top seed head is going to ripen before the, the seed heads that are on the branches ripen. So the way I have always done it, I have always grown quinoa as a large plant. That is to say, I don't put them two inches apart. I put them at least a foot apart. And when you do that, they branch. And we would go in and we would harvest the top of the plant first. Uh, so it was a two-stage harvest. So the top of the plant is cut off, laid on the tarp to after ripen for about a week before you thresh the seed off of it. Oh, wow. And during that week, the seed head finishes ripening some of the seed that would have not quite been ripe when you first cut it. You want to cut it before the seed starts to drop off. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> so you're always looking for that. It's like, is the oldest seed head 
dropping any seeds. As soon as it starts to drop seeds, you want to cut the top half of the plant. There's sort of a magic place. I don't know. It's maybe two-thirds of the way up the stem of the plant. Cut it right there. Everything above that will be ripe, and everything below that needs another week or maybe even 10 more days. So for me, harvesting quinoa has always been a two-step process. Take out the top of the plant first, take out the rest of the plant next. That doesn't work for commercial production where people want to use combines. And that's where the close spacing comes in. Okay. So more and more, as I've watched quinoa enter its newest stage of domestication, that is to say where it goes from being a plant harvested by people, you know, agrarians in villages in the Andes, when it goes from that level of domestication to the next level, which is on farmland, plowed by tractors, harvested by combines, it is necessary to convince the plant to ripen all its seeds at once. This can be done by, conceivably, it could be done by breeding the plant to do that. But it's most easily done just by basically cramming the plants together so close that they don't want to branch. By planting them four inches or less apart, you inhibit the branching of the plant so that all of its seed energy just goes into the very top of the plant. and It doesn't spend any energy putting up branches from the base uh, that will form later seed beds. Yeah. And a friend of mine refers to this as trying to get quinoa not to be quinoa. <laughs> but it's just part, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's another step in domestication and trying to make it suit our agriculture as opposed to be what it originally was. And so um, what's happening now, I was in a quinoa field uh I guess it was last year. I was in a quinoa field here where they're testing new varieties of quinoa that have been bred in the Netherlands. And when I got there, I'm looking around. It's like, where's the quinoa? And then I realize this field of plants that are no taller than my knees are quinoas. Oh, wow. And I go walking out through this field, and it's like, they've got 10 different varieties of quinoa out here that they're testing. And they are all these short plants with a single seed head on them. Some of them are growing, they're planted like half an inch apart. The reason that they are doing that, A, so that all the seed on the plant will ripen uniformly and they can use a combine to harvest it all at once. The uh, other reason that they do it, though, and this is a little bit brilliant, it's for weed control. Quinoa, if planted closely, does a good job of smothering out grass and other weeds around the base of the plant. And there are no herbicides that have been approved for use in quinoa at this point. So people who (laughs) who want to grow quinoa now have to do it without the benefit of herbicides. And so this is one of the strategies. You plant it really close so that the quinoa itself smothers out the weed competition and at the same time gives you a short plant that ripens early and all at once so it can be combined before the rainy season begins. It's brilliant. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's really brilliant. So that said, <laughs> I just think of how frustrated those quinoa plants are. <laughs> they are, you know, they they would love to, to you know, fill up six square feet if they could. <laughs> but they're constrained. Anyway, um, it's a different looking quinoa. And I suppose it is taking out the second step. Like you were saying, it's a two-step process to harvesting. Well, that's completely eliminating the second step so that you can just do it with machines. 
And you see, the thing is, it's like, as I said before, Quinoa is very sensitive about being rained on. Yeah. And the longer it's in the field, the greater chance it has to be rained on in any climate. So if you can reduce its ripeness period in the field to, you know, basically, if you can get it to ripen during a dry week and harvest it, thank goodness. Because (laughs) if you had to wait two weeks, you know, to get that second crop or the, the second cut, it could be raining on it by then. It's, it's a way to make the, to force the quinoa to ripen up early as well and, and uniformly. Okay. So, I don't know. It's just very interesting to me. But I like quinoa plants that are really big. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it both ways now. I tried it. I tried the close planting. And it's fine. I mean, it's, it's good, actually. But the plants just are not quite the same majestic thing as they are when you let them be their whole selves. Gardeners have a problem with growing their own quinoa in that gardens are almost too rich. Where we want to grow our cabbage and corn and tomatoes, that soil, if you grow quinoa in it, the quinoa wants to get very large, as I was saying before, make a big branched plant, set heavy seed, and and it's really, uh, it over yields. It, it breaks the plant okay. because the stems are not strong enough to hold its actual yield potential under those conditions. I regularly see, uh, you know, large quinoa plants like that making a quarter pound of quinoa each or more. Oh, wow. Think about that. A half a pound sometimes of quinoa off of one plant that's amazing there's no other plant that yields like that and it's you know something between 12 and 17 percent protein the seed wow which is phenomenal anything over 15 percent is considered a high protein uh, food interestingly my quinoas have been used by one commercial company that i know of lundberg farms that grows rice and quinoa and other things in California. And they started using my redhead and my um, cherry vanilla as their commercial quinoa. And I didn't get rich from it, don't worry. (laughs) All of of my plants are in the public domain and and I get no no royalties from any of this. But they were nice enough to tell me this and they also bought their stock seed from me which was nice and an income boost for me but they had done enough trials and they had done enough seed analysis on all of my quinoas they looked at my quinoas they looked at quinoas from kevin murphy at washington state and they chose redhead and cherry vanilla because redhead gave them the highest yield with uh, the least threat of head sprouting in the rain. But the cherry vanilla was over 16, was 16.5% protein. Wow. Whereas the redhead was 14% protein. And they wanted to blend the two varieties together so that the average protein content would be over 15%. Because if it's over, I think it is 15%, it can be categorized as a high-protein food. And that's a labeling, I don't know. You can't say this is high-protein unless it's at least 15% protein. So it allowed Lundberg to market their quinoa dinners. I mean, they had, you know, different ways of of selling the quinoa besides just quinoa in a jar. Uh, But they could label it as a high-protein food. Uh, That makes it so that pretty sure... If you are getting government assistance and your food for your food buying, a certain amount of it is supposed to be high protein food. So okay. you know, <laughs> all these all these things work together. <laughs> this is this is yeah. where Keen One meets uh, agriculture and food processing. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so it continues its march of being domesticated by the North American food system. Anyway, it's very interesting to me. I learned so much more about my quinoa from other people. Than <laughs> but it's kind of cool. It's something that I am a little bit curious about, though, because it is a pretty amazing food, like you're saying, high in, high in protein. and It grow, grows abundantly. How can a home gardener take that beautiful dried seed head and then end up with a delicious seed? Like, what's the process from seed head to seed okay. <laughs> or to dinner. This biggest, <laughs> no, this is this is quinoa's biggest challenge in, in acceptance because, uh, as I'm sure you know, quinoa naturally all the seeds are coated in saponins. Saponins are plant metabolites that well, they're actually soapy. They suds, but they taste bitter, which is probably a deterrent. For birds, birds do not attack quinoa, okay. probably because of the saponins. So uh, while all my sunflowers and my corn is being devastated by birds, my quinoa is not. However, <laughs> saponins don't just taste bitter. They are actually anti-nutritional. It is not good for you to have saponins in your diet. And so traditionally... In, you know, in the Andean cultures, uh, the quinoa is washed. It's soaked in water. It's washed with uh, a rubbing action. That water becomes quite soapy. The soapy water uh, has uses in the household. It's, well, specifically, it's used to wash your hair. So for people native to the Andean mountains, the saponin was not a problem. The saponin was an asset. The saponin kept birds from eating the crop and gave you a way to wash your hair and wash other, probably wash clothes for that matter. So it was actually a resource. For the North American gardener, uh, we don't need soap. <laughs> you know, We don't need to wash <laughs> our hair in our quinoa rinse water. And so it's just a, a cumbersome and troublesome step to do the soaking and rubbing and rinsing to get the saponin off the seed heads. And so, uh, and some quinoa varieties have a lot of saponin. Some quinoa varieties have less saponin. And we have now bred, I shouldn't say we, plant breeders have bred quinoa that does not have saponin. Okay. And all those all those uh, varieties that I saw growing in the field last summer, those were all saponin-free varieties. You could eat them straight off the plant, and they were not bitter. It's quite interesting. Once birds realize that that is food there and that it is not bitter, bird predation could become a new problem if you're growing saponin-free varieties. Yeah. A friend of mine grew a French saponin-free variety up on the Olympic Peninsula. He grew it at the same time he was growing my redhead. And I asked him later on, I said, how did that saponin-free variety yield? He said, it didn't yield at all. Birds ate it. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the only, that's the only real-life story that I have about that. But yeah. I suspect that that will be a problem for saponin-free seed. Yeah. Okay, so that aside, 99.9% .9 of all the quinoa varieties that are available have saponins in them at one level or another. Commercially, the saponins are removed either by a physical rubbing process that uses something like a rice polisher to polish the quinoa seeds, and then they are rinsed and immediately dried. Kevin Murphy told me uh, his method for doing it was to put the quinoa in a nylon, fine nylon mesh bag and put it in a washing machine. Hmm. Uh, a, a dedicated washing machine that, you know, without soap, that just agitates it, agitates it, agitates it, rinses it, agitates it, rinses it. And all the seed is inside the nylon bag. 
you would not want that bag to open up because <laughs> it would clog your washing machine. And I have to say, I once did it with pillowcases. The pillowcase ripped open. Oh, no. And I oh, clogged no. my wife's washing machine. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Luckily, she wasn't here at the time. And by the time she got back, I had fixed it. But it's a hazard. It's a hazard. And I didn't even tell her that that happened. But the next time she washed clothes, she says, did you have quinoa in the washing machine? And I said, uh, yeah, how'd you know? And she says, because there's quinoa in the slow to close. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that, is, that is a way to do it. Agitation, warm water, uh, lots of rinsing. And then you take it out and you immediately dry it. Okay. Like on a screen in the sun, in the wind, and you need to get it really dry. But if you dry it right away and thoroughly, then you can store that quinoa and use it in your kitchen. And, and you know, that's, that's how I do it, basically. I once provided quinoa to a seed conference where there were 700 people there for dinner, and they served... Uh, Actually, they served my delicata squash stuffed with my quinoa. Oh. And I prepared the quinoa in the washing machine that way, and it worked. Okay. Not saying that you won't get in trouble with your spouse for doing it, but that will work. <laughs> and so. just to clarify, that yes. process is necessary after the thrashing and winnowing? Oh, 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 yes. Okay. okay. So. Back to the threshing. You cut the quinoa head on the plant. You know, you might be cutting the whole plant down at once, or you might be doing the two-stage process, like I said. You let the quinoa dry. I like to let it dry slowly in the shade. It allows for more after-ripening of all the seed. Once the plant is dry, it'll take about a week. You walk on it with your feet. And oh. you, you do this sort of little chicken I call it the chicken watch. You're kind of scratching with your feet like a chicken does on the seed heads, rubbing them. And also I have a threshing stick. And as I'm doing this, I also hit the stem and it makes the seed drop off onto the tarp. Basically, you rub the, you rub the seed heads like that until they're all off of the plant. Throw away the, leaf, the stems on the tarp, you are left with a mixture of seeds and leaves and sticks. Pass that through a screen. I would suggest a, a one-eighth inch screen. There will be clumps of seed, pieces of the seed head, basically, that don't go through that eighth inch screen. Just rub your hand over it, and that'll break them up, and the seed will all drop through it. Okay. Okay, so now what you've got on the tarp, is a mixture of seeds and saponins. It looked like a fine white waxy dust. Aphids and insects of various sorts are there. <laughs> um, you winnow this. And winnowing basically means separating seeds from chaff using a breeze. And, you know, I usually just do it outdoors where I'm pouring seed from a container into a bucket or a bin as the breeze is blowing. This is easy to do with quinoa because the seed is heavy and the trash is light. And you'll just see all the fine parts blowing away. And the seed is dropping down into your bucket or bin or whatever your container is. You do that about three times. After you winnow it about three times, it's almost all seed, but you'll see that the seed still has little papery bracts that are attached to the outside of it. You can, if it's a small amount of seed, you can rub that between your hands. Gloves, gloves might help. Physically rubbing it will make those little papery bracts fall off. If it's more than you want to do with your hands, this is the secret. You can suck it through a shop vacuum cleaner. I suggest one that is <laughs> reserved for this purpose. But it, when you suck it into a shop vacuum, as the seed goes down 
the corrugated tube of the vacuum cleaner, the corrugations rub the seeds. And when you look inside the vacuum cleaner, you'll see just dust and beautifully clean seeds. Huh. And then you winnow that again three times. At that point, what you have is this pretty nicely polished seed. And if you've put it through the vacuum cleaner just once, you can still plant that seed. It'll grow perfectly. If you repeat that process and you vacuum it, oh, I don't know. You can vacuum it maybe six times. Wow. And each time you do it, you are removing supponents. And you'll see them in the vacuum. And that's this is like the physical non-water way to do it. Each time you pass it through there, you are wearing through the seed coat. You're not just removing saponins, you're removing cells from the seed coat. At some point, you'll start rubbing the edges of the seed to the point that you begin to destroy the embryo of the seed. Because the embryo is wrapped around that little seed uh, just like a little plant being wrapped around the edge of a coin. The embryo is on the very outer rim of that coin-like seed. And the more abrasion you give it, no matter what kind of abrasion it is, the more you are enda endangering the integrity of the embryo. Mm -hmm. So like when Lundberg runs their seed through the rice polisher, uh, when it comes out of there, that seed would be no good for planting. It might germinate, but if you tried to grow it, it, you might see it put up leaves, but there wouldn't be any root. Or you might see it put down a root, but there wouldn't be any leaves because the embryo will have been broken somewhere between the root and the shoot huh. by that process. But if you're doing it for food consumption, you know, that might not be a problem for you if you don't mind eating not quite whole quinoa. <laughs> so, I know this seems like a real pain, and it is. And that's why quinoa is not growing in everybody's garden. So okay. I, I have resisted the idea that we should be breeding saponin-free quinoa for a while. But I see now that the reason that it is not being adopted is because of the saponins. And if we could if we could get more people eating quinoa in their garden from their gardens just by having saponin-free varieties, that's probably a good idea. This saponin removal step is such a roadblock for most people. It's hard to tell, you have though. To dedicate yourself. Yeah. Because it's hard to tell. Because even things like there's a growing popularity with soapwort because of the saponins that people are looking for very gentle soap alternatives. So if that starts to become popular, then maybe the older processing method could actually gain popularity. Like I said, it's actually a resource <laughs> if you have a use for it. If you have a use for it, it's valuable. In fact, it's kind of funny. The first quinoa commercial operation in the United States was in Colorado, at a place called uh, White Mountain Farm. White Mountain Farm was one of the first recipients of the very same quinoa seeds as I got because uh, the seeds were brought to Colorado State and uh, they were distributed in Colorado because Colorado is actually a pretty good place to grow quinoa. And so the very same seeds that I grow went to White Mountain Farm and they started growing them commercially and they started doing uh, the physical saponin removal method. And a lot of the quinoa that w went out to alternative, you know, food stores in the United States was coming from White Mountain. And I had the opportunity to meet that farmer in 2014 at the World Quinoa Symposium that was held at uh, Washington State. And I asked him about the saponin. I said, so what do you do with all the saponin that you remove? And he shook his head and he said, I have a barn full of it. Oh. Full of it in 55-gallon drums, pure saponin from quinoa. And he is just wishing he could find somebody who wants that. 
<laughs> so there's a farmer who saw, you know, he saw the resource of it. He saw yeah. it was valuable. Yeah. He could not find somebody to make use of it, though. Yet. But anyway, that, <laughs> you know, a quinoa industry that produced uh, clean seed by physical removal that way would have a boatload of saponin as a byproduct. And if there was a market for that, for, you know, some kind of gentle shampoo or soap or something like that, that would be a great synergy. Thanks for listening. I highly recommend checking out Frank's seed selections at wildgardenseeds.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Stay tuned for part two of this conversation. We'll be discussing all things Atriplex hortensis, Auric. If you have any questions or comments, or you just want to connect, head over to CarmenPorter.com.